Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel. We'll be reading all of chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of the God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and distributed among all the people a whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before, today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all of his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. My name's Young Jay. I'm one of the elders here. Um, Chanel and I, my wife, uh, we PCSed in to Okinawa uh, September of 2021. Uh, so during that time, we still had the, uh, the COVID protocols and the COVID restrictions. 
So when we got in, we got to the AMC terminal, then of course you do your two weeks of prison in TLF. So we do two weeks of our time there. Then after that, the, the, the CSD gods like sanctifies you as COVID free, and then you can finally begin your transition to the island. So one of the very first things that we did was uh, look for a car, right? So we uh, went over to both of the uh, BCs and like the Payless Motors down the street, uh, Facebook, and just a couple of different places. I think it took us like three to four days to like find both of our cars. But one of the places that we visited was the Lemon Lot. Uh, when we went into the Lemon Lot, uh, my son Aiden um, asked me a deep, deep like philosophical question that I could not answer, which was, why is there no lemonade in the Lemon Lot? <laughs> and as an inexperienced dad, obviously I tried to explain it. I, probably, I don't even remember what I said. I probably made zero sense because that's kind of how Aiden looked at me as if I made no sense. And, the conversation is kind of in there. Uh, when I read through this chapter for the first time in 2 Samuel chapter 6, that's the kind of look that I had, right? Like when you read the story, it's a little odd, right? So it talks about the Ark of the Covenant, which is a, really foreign to us uh, in today's time because we don't really talk about it all that much. We don't have something like the Ark that we uh, have here. Uh, then later on, as you read through the story, uh, as we just read, um, Uzzah like touches the Ark, in the middle of worship, then he dies, like, in the middle of worship. Uh, then after that, like, David, like, throws it away, essentially. Then he saw that, he saw that somebody else was being blessed, so he took the ark back. Uh, then um, he has a weird conversation with uh, Mikal, the Saul's daughter, about how she had no children until the end of her life. Like, a lot of weird, kind of odd things. Uh, so my goal today is hopefully I can kind of unpack this and explain this passage a little better than I did to Aiden about why there was no lemonade in the lemon lot. So let's pray and uh, we'll dig in. Um, God, you are good. Uh, you are a good father. Uh, father, I pray that as we uh, work through uh, this chapter, that we can see that the Ark of the Covenant was fulfilled by your son, Jesus Christ, and that uh, it leads us to grace, it leads us to freedom, and it leads us to our identity, which leads us to worship. Father, we love you and in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, our, our main three points are art leads us to grace, altar leads us to freedom, and identity leads us to worship. In verse 1 through 4, uh, we see King David forming a massive crowd to bring the ark back uh, into their possessions. Uh, so which means at one point, uh, the ark was taken from the Israelites. Uh, so for some context before uh, we dive in, let's first talk about what the ark is and how it was taken. So in the next slide, uh, we have a picture of the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle was a temporary place of worship uh, that the Israelites and Moses built according to God's specification. After escaping Egypt, the word tabernacle is a translation of the Hebrew word mishakan, which means dwelling place. The tent was divided into two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies that I um, beautifully marked with an arrow uh, over there, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. The room were uh, separated by a veil, similar to an entry screen that we have at our house. Uh, the purpose of the tabernacle was to provide a place uh, where people can properly worship. And in the outer court, which we'll look at later, uh, the priests sacrifice animals on the altar. The Ark of the Covenant, which on the next slide, uh, is a wooden chest overlaid with pure gold. It had two wooden poles that you see on the side with the rings attached to them. Um, it was used to transport the ark. The ark was the only furniture in the Holy of Holies. So it was the only furniture in the back room, uh, which represented the presence of God. The ark is where God told Moses that he would dwell among the people 
ark signified the Mosaic uh, covenant and was the symbol and the location of God's presence on earth. It was placed in the Holy of Holies uh, in the very back room of the tabernacle. And some of you have may have heard of it uh, called as the Tent of Meetings. Uh, this is a place where the high priest would go to be with the Lord. Uh, no one was allowed to be in that room except for the high priest. And even the high priest only went in that room once, uh, once a year. So the, the ark represented the presence of God. Inside the ark, it contained three things. Uh, it contained one uh, jar of manna, which symbolized the, um, how God provided for them uh, through the wilderness. On the Ten Commandments, which represented uh, God's law. And lastly, Aaron's rod to represent God's miraculous power. So the Israelites carried the ark and transported the uh, tabernacle as they wandered through the wilderness. And throughout Israelites' journey and throughout their history, we see the ark in their greatest victories. So in Joshua chapter 3, verse 14, uh, which we have on the next slide, it says, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. So as they're crossing the Jordan River, you see the ark present there. Then in chapter 6, verse 13, uh, And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of rams, horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. So again, you see the uh, ark during the wall of Jericho. As they were walking around, uh, around the wall of Jericho, and as the wall came down, again, you see the ark present in that story. So ark wasn't, for them, it wasn't just an arbitrary symbol of God's presence, but God himself manifested uh, in his presence in a special way where the ark was. So the ark should not be treated lightly. Then you fast forward to the previous chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. You see that the ark is lost to the Philistines. Um, The sons of Eli took the ark into battle, lost the battle, and then lost possession of the ark. The Philistines took the ark uh, really as a form of a trophy to show that, hey, we defeated the Israelites. Our our idol that we worship is much greater than... Than, the, than their God, the God of the Israelites. So they took the ark as a symbol and took it as a trophy to kind of show off. Well, then, if you keep reading in chapter 4 and 5, then you'll see that taking the ark didn't work in the Philistines' favor. The ark evoked havoc in their land. All kinds of bad and weird things happened while the ark was with them. People died out of panic. Uh, some people had tumors in the Philistines. Uh, but the most fascinating thing happened on the first two nights uh, when they took the ark in their possession, which was they laid it right next to their statue, their idol called Dagon. And they placed it in a way where Dagon seemed uh, superior to the ark. Uh, the very next day, uh, they wake up and they see that the statue uh, switched positions. And it made it seem like the, uh, the ark was uh, superior and their, their idol, Dagon, was uh, inferior to the ark. So they put the statue back in its place. The next day, the next morning, they wake up, and they find that their statue, their idol, was faced, uh, fell face downward in the, on the ground in front of the ark, and the statue's arms and uh, heads were cut off. So the Philistines brought the ark to show that their idol, uh, Dagon, was greater, but weird things happened uh, in their land that show that the ark uh, that represented the presence of God was not inferior to their idol. So immediately they decided to send the ark back to the Israelites. So they decided to send the ark to the house of Abinadab, where it stayed for 20 years uh, during Saul's reign. And Saul, for the most part during his kingship, really ignored the ark. So it's really fascinating to see kind of timeline in, in the difference between how David and Saul treated and looked at the ark. So David, Saul becomes king, uh, ignores the ark, and he fails as the, uh, the first king of Israel. Then 
Then we fast forward several years. David ascends to his throne, and he becomes the king of Israel. And one of the very first things that he uh, commands is to bring the ark back uh, to Jerusalem to establish the covenant. So David's concern for the ark is a sign of his commitment to God and his faithfulness to Israel's religious foundation from the time of Moses and showing the importance of worshiping the true king. So that's the context behind verse 1 through 4. Uh, 19 more verses to go, so I hope you guys brought snacks. Uh, we'll be here for a while. Uh, but today's uh, first point is ark leads to grace. So in verse 5, we see David and all the house of Israel were worshiping and celebrating before the Lord. So David and his 30,000 men have possession of the ark, and they are on their way back to Jerusalem as they celebrate. And on their way back, in the, you see in verse 6 through 8, the oxen that's carrying the ark stumbles so Uzzah put out his hand to the ark to prevent it from falling to the ground. Then in verse 7, we see that God struck, struck him dead because he's angry. So they have possession of the ark. They're going back to Jerusalem to reestablish the covenant. The, ox, the oxen that is uh, carrying the ark stumbles. The ark is about to fall. So Uzzah, probably with every good intention, touches the ark to uh, save it. Then he dies. Can you imagine this scene? David forms an army of 30,000 people. Go gets the ark from their enemy. They are singing, worshiping. And as far as you know, their singing and worshiping is genuine. Then the oxen stumbles. Uzzah steps in, tries to, uh, grabs the ark, touches the ark from falling to the ground. Then he's struck dead. Some stories in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, can be so honest and transparent, it's really uncomfortable. And it's really hard to swallow. Passages like this makes us question God's character, right? It makes us question God's intent. I have to thank Vince for this. He puts the preaching calendar together. Before, before he went back to the States for a little bit, he got to preach through the book of Psalms about grace and mercy and compassion, all the great things. Uh, I'm standing here today talking about people dying in the middle of worship, so how convenient for him. Uzzah dies in the midst of tremendous joy in front of 30,000 people. Imagine the deadly silence. This story would be so much easier to talk about. This story would be so much easier to discuss if Uzzah just didn't die. I mean, we struggle with this type of passage, do we not? I certainly do. Why did he die for touching the ark? At a glance, it seems like punishment seems to be more cruel than the crime. It seems a little excessive, but we know that the God of the Bible is a just God. The Christianity God that we worship is not only just and fair, but he is kind and good. But most importantly, he is infinitely wise beyond our comprehension. Matthew 5 tells us that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. So let's dig a little deeper into the word and get some context from Exodus and the book of Numbers. So in Exodus chapter 25, verse 12 through 15, uh, and in Numbers, it shows, give us uh, Moses' specific directions on how they should take care of the ark and specifically transport the ark. So in Exodus 25, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on, the, on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the, on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. And then in Numbers uh, chapter 4, verse 15, it says, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, 
As the camp sets out, after, the, after that, the sons of Koath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. So when the ark was constructed, God had very specific directions on how it should be transported. Specifically, he had three rules on how ark should be transported. First, it should not be seen. It should be covered. And while they were traveling through the wilderness, you can't touch the ark. And when you're carrying the ark, you don't put the ark on a cart, but you carry the ark by the poles that we saw in the pictures. So in today's passage in verse 3, obviously they didn't do that. Uh, so they broke all the rules. Uh, which, so they failed to cover the ark. It was a carry the ark. So obviously they didn't read the instructions manual and the user's manual. So Uzzah oversaw the uh, transportation of the transportation of the ark, put the ark on the cart, and he himself, he had specific directions he had to follow, and he didn't. But not only Uzzah, but the king himself, David, with the nickname of a man after God's own heart, also didn't follow the rules. But now, this kind of leads us to one more uncomfortable question. God struck Uzzah down because he broke a set of rules? Doesn't that seem a little contrary to the gospel? Don't we stand here every week and we talk about how gospel is through salvation through alone, right? It's through grace alone. Breaking the rule means death? That sounds like a lot like every other religion in the world, right? Where good deeds save you, your bad deeds send you to hell. I thought the gospel of Jesus Christ was founded upon grace instead of our ability to follow a set of rules. But here in this story, Uzzah is struck dead because he didn't follow rules. There are a lot of rules in the Old Testament they had many dietary restrictions, societal and interpersonal relationship laws that they had to follow. And for the tabernacle, they had specific directions on the clean and unclean laws for you to enter. For the Ark of the Covenant, as we discussed, you can't touch the Ark. You have to carry it in a very specific way. What's the point? What's the point to all these rules? What's the bigger picture? Is there a bigger picture? God, in His infinite wisdom... What is the message he's trying to pass to the, people, to the finite people of Israel? All the rules around the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle were not your typical technical rituals and rules that you see in other religions to please the deity. The other religions, to please, you have rules and regulations, all these things you have to follow so that you can please the God that they are serving. But in Deuteronomy 4, we see the purpose. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 1 and 35, it says... And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And you skip down to verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, and that there is no other besides him. Right before Moses' death, he spoke about rules, rituals, laws, it says, if you obey God, the world will understand who God is. The rules and rituals were established not only to be followed, but to show his holiness in the midst of our sin, and for the people of Israel to know that Yahweh is a true God, and that there is no other. So all these rules were established not only to be followed, but to describe and to describe a picture of who God is. So the laws were not established for the purpose of gaining favor from him. It wasn't for the purpose of gaining salvation. But it was to represent and create a picture of who God is and what that means to us as fallen people. Uh, Aiden, my son, uh, he, played, he started playing soccer uh, this past year. He ain't very good, but he's playing. <laughs> but 
when, when he plays with his club, we come home and we play at the house or in the backyard. And like all the rules like go out the window. All of a sudden, like when it's out of balance on him, it's like not out of balance. When it's, out of, when it's not out of balance on me, it's like out of balance. When I score, for some reason it doesn't count. When he scores, it like, when he misses, it like counts. Like all the rules are out the window. So essentially, we're like not playing soccer. But if the rules are forgotten, then the message to the world on who God is is lost and sneered. The rules were presented to show his holiness and that we are infinitely distant from God without a perfect mediator. All throughout the Old Testament, the message is your sin is serious. Your sin separates you from me. Your sin and my holiness cannot dwell together. Other religions has rituals, rules to please a deity. And somehow you're supposed to follow and meet all these rules. But only thing that shows is that there is an infinite distance between us and the deity. None of us, no matter how hard we try, none of us live up to the standard of the Ten Commandments. No efforts can overcome that gap. We can't understand the gospel until we acknowledge our sinful nature. We can't accept the gospel until we realize we need a savior. The reason why we don't understand the judgment of God sometimes is because we're not aware of our own, the seriousness of our sins. We're not aware of our brokenness. We're not aware of the damage that we cause to ourselves and the damage that we cause to others. When, so then going back to Uzzah and David, when Uzzah and David chose not to follow the rules, and place the ark on the cart. The reason why Uzzah mindlessly touched the ark is because they rejected the fundamental principle of the gospel. The fundamental principle of the gospel that we can't save ourselves. When Uzzah saw the ark falling, he thought the ark falling and touching the ground would defile the ark. He thought ark falling off the cart would somehow diminish the value of the ark. So he thought he needed to save the ark. He thought he could save the ark. When the ark was falling over, Uzzah was thinking two things. One, the soil and the ground was going to defile the ark. And two, that God needs our help, like the other deities in the world. In other religion, God has a part, I have a part, you have a part. I have to be good. I have to contribute to my own salvation. So to answer our question earlier, was Uzzah struck dead because he didn't follow a set of rules? The answer is, Yes, but not really. Yes, they broke the rule. But more than that, they rejected the gospel. Uzzah had no concept of his own need of a savior. He didn't see his own sin and need for the gospel. Even David, the king himself, a man after God's own heart, forgot about his need for salvation and picked up the presence of God. He picked up the ark on his own term, transported it in the way that he wanted on his own strength, as it was some form of a trophy. Really not much different than what the Philistines did earlier. The uniqueness of this religion, the uniqueness of the God of the Bible, uniqueness of the gospel was lost. But Uzzah and David, they're not alone. I have an aunt with a dark past. Uh, for a long time, she hurt um, a lot of her uh, family for, uh, for several decades. Essentially, long story short, she stole from her grand or my grandparents, so she stole from her parents, and essentially just disappeared for several decades. Um, when my mom used to give me updates on the situation, I pitied her. I pitied my aunt, but not in a loving way, but thinking myself as high and mighty, 
and never thought, like, I would never do something like that. And really pitied the black sheep in the family and thought to myself, what is wrong with you? It's easy for us to think that I am not that bad. I don't steal from my family. Actually, I provide for my family. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't beat my kids. I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Right? We all think that. If we're being completely honest with ourselves, when we say, I'm not that bad, what, really mean, what we really mean is, I'm pretty good. In fact, I'm better than so-and-so. Right? When we compare ourselves, and we look at some of the uh, people around us, and we look at the news, like, I would never do something like that. What is wrong with them? Right? Without saying it, without even consciously thinking it on purpose, we're trying to build a religion that's just like every other religion in the world. We're trying to build a religion and build a God that as long as you're good, you can overcome an unruly God. We're trying to build a religion where you can contribute and create your own salvation. When we do this, it brings us to one of two places. One, you have a false sense of identity and humility. You end up actually believing that you can be David that defeated Goliath. And two, you're left broken. You're left hopeless. You grow weary and you're lost because you try and try again to meet the standards, but you continue to fail. Through Uzzah's death, God is sending a message to David and to us that he is holy, that he is so holy that he can't overlook any sin or any injustice. And because of our brokenness, there's nothing we can do to overcome the gap and redeem ourselves. No amount of effort can bring us salvation. There is no way to bridge the gap until there is a sacrifice. There is no way to bridge the gap until we find the true and better David. Only way to salvation is to find the most perfect high priest, the most perfect high priest whom David calls Yahweh to enter the back room on our behalf in the Holy of Holies as our perfect mediator to the Father. Now, does this sound familiar? Verse 9 through 11 tells us that David walks away from the ark for three months and gives the ark to Obed. So he gets repossession of the ark, travels, Uzzah dies, and he's like, I don't want this thing. He gives it away to Obed. So David isn't giving the ark away to Obed as a gift, but he's really just giving it away like kind of like a dirty laundry. It's actually pretty similar to what some of us do right before we PCS, right? Specifically the ones that live off base, right? You have a... You have a furniture and appliance that you've had for several years. You loved it. Now it's time to PCS. You have no idea how to recycle it or how to throw it away. Uh, the locals aren't picking it up. So what do you do? You pick it up. You go into base housing and you just drop it off in somebody's curve, right? If you must, um, don't come to Kadena. Go to Foster or go to Leicester, like some other base. If you have to come to Kadena, like don't come to Jennings. I live on Jennings. You can go to, like, one of the neighborhoods that ends with the heights. Like, all the houses look condemned over there. Like, your trash will fit just right in. Um, David walks away from the ark for three months. And interestingly enough, Obed is thriving. When the ark gets there, he is flourishing as God blesses him and all of his household. Not only is he blessed, but God makes sure that David hears about it. Obed is a Gideon which means he's a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. God blesses someone who is not part of the chosen nation of Israel. God deliberately blesses the foreigner and ensures David hears about it. This happens after learning about God's holiness through the ark. 
After learning about God's holiness, God is teaching David, not only am I holy, but I am a God of grace. My love and grace are infinite. Extension of my grace is limitless, even to the foreigners. It has no bounds and reaches all people, regardless of race or social status. God is showing David that we're all sinners, that no one is righteous, but his grace reaches all people, which means anyone can be saved. David is learning that this God is not only holier than he thought, but he is more gracious than he thought. Through the ark, he's able to understand grace. The ark shows them how whole, holy God is and how much we are in need of his grace. And the ark's blessing over Obed is showing that his grace is for all people. Ark leads us to grace. Then point number two, altar leads us to freedom. This brings us to verse 12 through 13. We see that David tries to bring the ark back again for the second time. But this time, the transportation of the ark looks significantly different. Uh, specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 13 uh, that we read today, uh, two key words here, bore and sacrificed. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. The word bore in Hebrew is nasa, which means carry by hand. So this time, they hand carried the ark by the poles as they were supposed to, as they were instructed, and also gave sacrifices along the way, which they didn't do the first time. So finally, the second time around, they followed the instructions and transported the ark in a line with God's design. And in the picture, in the next picture that we have is the bronze altar. The Israelites made daily sacrifices to God on the bronze altar. As you can see, the altar was, in the next picture please, in the, the courtyard, um, the altar was situated prominently in the courtyard at the very front. So it was, in fact, the first thing that you saw when you enter the courtyard. The picture is clear. You cannot approach the holy presence of the Lord unless we first come to the place of sacrifice. You can't walk past and enter until the atonement is made for our sin. The altar's placement revealed that coming to God or receiving the benefits of His presence requires dealing with the problem of our sins first. The sacrifice at the altar shields and overrides the priest as he approaches uh, God. In every religion in the world, what keeps you from God is failure. In Christianity, it's not our failure that keeps us from God, but it's our refusal to admit that we are failure. On his second attempt, on his second journey, David sacrificed in the same way he would have in the tabernacle. He sacrificed an ox and an animal because he finally realized he needs a savior. When the priests offered the sacrifice, what they were saying is that I should be utterly destroyed and burned but someone else will be burned in my place so that I can enter. David finally understood. He learned that the only possible way of coming to God is not through my good deeds, but through a death of someone else on my behalf. He learned that I can only know the Lord by being in his presence through a sacrifice of another. Someone else is destroyed because of me. That someone else It's Jesus. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the lamb that was slain so that we can walk past. Jesus is the eternal lamb that was killed so that we can approach to the Father. 
In Hebrews 10, verse 5 and 10, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you, have you prepared for me. And you skip down to verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus is the true and better David. The most perfect high priest walks onto the altar and provides himself as a sacrifice for all people, for you and me, once and for all. No more sacrifices are required. The moment Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. The tearing of the veil at the moment of Jesus' death symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, was sufficient atonement for all people. It signified that now that the way into the Holy of Holies, the way into the back room, was open for all people, not just the high priest, at all times, not just once a year. The veil was symbolic of Jesus himself as the only way to the Father. Jesus is our true and better high priest. As believers in his finished work, we partake in his better priesthood. We can now enter the Holy of Holies through him. The Ark of the Covenant was fulfilled by Jesus Christ in the gospel. Jesus Christ liberates us, and through his blood, we are free. There's a popular song called I Am Free that came out in the early 2000s, and the lyrics go, Through you the blind will see, through you the mute will sing, through you the dead will rise, through you all the hearts will praise, through you all the darkness flees, through you my heart screams, I am free. It's an exciting worship song if you've heard of it. Um, and I was that kid at church camp that would jump up and down to the song but, and screaming, I am free. But I had no idea what I was saying. I didn't, in, in, inside, I didn't feel free. I didn't understand the lyrics. I didn't feel free at all. I didn't understand how any Christian can feel free when all I saw was a giant list of all the things that I can't do, a giant list of all the rules that I had to follow. I didn't understand the fundamental principle of the gospel. I didn't understand that I didn't understand what Jesus' death meant for me. I only saw God as a righteous judge who condemns. I failed to see that he's a righteous judge who immediately after making a ruling against the defendant took off his robe, came down from his podium, walked over to the defendant's table, and he himself faced the penalty and fulfilled the cost that he demanded as a judge. And for that, we are free. The altar leads us to freedom. Then our last final point, identity. Our identity that we find in Christ leads us to worship. In verse 14, 20, uh, verse 23, uh, the second half of this chapter is a dialogue between David and Michal the, Michal, the daughter of Saul, the first king of Israel. She's a royal citizen. She comes from a big family. And she saw David worshiping, and today's passage reveals that David was worshiping with all his might, and he danced through the streets. David continued to worship, he continued to dance, he continued to sacrifice. And in verse 20, where Michal expresses her disgust and dissatisfaction towards David and his worship, then in verse 21, he responds by saying, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince of, over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. His statement in verse 21, when he says, 
It was before the Lord who chose me. That was not a proud statement. That was not a jab at Saul. That wasn't a jab at Michal. But it was a moment when David remembered his identity. Who was David? David was a shepherd boy. David was from a common family. No royal blood. No big family. In fact, he was the youngest of the sons. He was overlooked by all people. He was even overlooked by his own family. But God chose him. David realized that being the chosen king of Israel had nothing to do with him, but everything to do with God. He provided nothing as a king that was worthy. Quite frankly, we see that in this story. But God chose him out of his own faithfulness and his kindness. Through Uzzah's death and Obed's blessing, David learned that he was chosen through God's grace. Once he finally understood grace through the ark, then realized the importance of the altar and that the freedom that the altar brings, he found his identity. His identity led to dancing. His identity led to worship. David's identity as a recipient of grace led to worship. God, the gospel is not about, come, let us examine your worship. Come, let us examine your life. Then you can be part of the family. That is not the gospel. But our identity in Christ is what leads us to worship. It's not the other way around. David Foster Wallace, uh, he's an American novelist. And as far as we know, like, he's, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, but he gave a commencement speech in 2005 out of college. And during his speech, he talked about worship. And I think it rings true in the way that our hearts are wired. He said, there is no such, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will feel ever more power other you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these form of worship is that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. We are all worshiping something. All of us are following something. Whatever it is, it controls us. What do you worship? What do I worship? When you're alone in your room, when you are alone in your thoughts, when it's just you, what brings you fear? What brings you joy? Mikhail, the royal daughter, she didn't understand grace. Therefore, could not understand why David was worshiping the way he was. She didn't understand his path to kingship. Verse 23 tells us that Mikhail had no more children, which is another odd thing about this story. But if you, when you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that blessing associated with obedience to God is a fruitful womb. Mikhail's lack of understanding of grace would mean that the house of Saul would be forever separate from Israel's eternal royal dynasty. But who did have heir of David? Who did David have children with that ultimately brought Messiah into the world? It was Bathsheba. Bathsheba. It, was, it wasn't the royal Michal, but Bathsheba, a commoner, just a normal person, person, an adulteress. It was through David's sin 
and his marriage with Bathsheba that brought the Savior into this world. God's work through people who understands grace because grace is the fundamental principle of the gospel. Grace helps us find our identity, our identity as God's needy children. And that identity, our identity in Christ, is what leads us to worship. William Kopower was an 18th century English poet and an Anglican hymn writer. And in his poem, Love Constraining to Obedience, he writes, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, and hearing his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child. Alec, my three-year-old, he still wakes up every morning at like 5, 5.30. Every morning at 5, 5.30, he walks into my room, he tucks on my shirt, and he says, let's go upstairs. Let's go upstairs. He means downstairs. We're still working on his directional language. <laughs> but every morning, he walks into my room as if he owns the place and wakes me up. And just to be clear, just to set expectations, and I'm sure you guys don't want to, but you are not welcome in my room at 5 a.m. <laughs> he doesn't get to walk into my room because he did anything right. In fact, he's doing everything that I don't want him to do. But for Alec, he has that right. He has that privilege. Only he can come into my room and wake me up in the way that he does whenever he wants. No one, no one else has that privilege. No one else has the right to wake me up in a way that he can. And he has nothing to do with his performance. It has nothing to do with his good deeds, but his identity as my boy. We have a place in the back room we have a place in the Holy of Holies, not as a slave, not as a beggar, not as a law-abiding citizen, but as sons and daughters. We have a place in the Father's house, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but simply because of our identity, because of, it, because of our identity as children. We have a place because our Father broke down the veil and opens and holds the door to the back room so that we can enter to the Father. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hearing his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child. Family, we are not slaves anymore. We are sons and daughters of a king, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are sovereign, you are graceful, you are merciful. Your name is above all names, and you deserve all the praise. God, I pray that we can remember identity. God, I pray that our identity overshadows all of our weaknesses. That you call us your own, and because of that, we can enter the kingdom. Because of that, we have a home where there is no more pain, no more fear, and no more tear. God, I pray that we can remember that identity, and that we can walk in confidence, not because of our own, but because of you, because of what you've done, because of the sacrifice that was made, for all people, for all time, once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen.